Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, I'm going to be talking to Douglas Murray, who is an author and journalist based in Britain, who I've wanted to have on this show for a long time. I've actually I've interviewed Murray before on his uh, book released in May 2017 called The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam, which is, I think, one of the most insightful things written on the migrant crisis, on the identity crisis gripping Europe, and on what this all means for our time. It's one of the best books I've ever read on that subject. He masterfully captures the fact that the loss of Christianity has resulted in a loss of identity that we're busy uh, filling with other things. And The Strange Death of Europe spent 20 weeks on the Sunday Times bestseller list. It was a number one bestseller in nonfiction and has been subsequently translated into more than 20 languages already. There was one moment in the book that I found very powerful. He was talking about this sense of uh, almost spiritual malaise across Europe. And he said that there's a moment when... Uh, you know, young European men in their late 20s, early 30s, young men and women will be in a nightclub at like three in the morning and the lights are flashing around them and they're either drunk or, you know, have consumed some sort of drug and and they sit there and they suddenly come to this realization as this world of hedonism is whirling around them that there has to be more to life than this. It's, it was so powerfully put because I've spoken to a lot of people who have had that experience. It's why you see so many people realizing that life uh, is it means so much more than is being presented to us by progressives, by the left, by secularism. And part of where this identity crisis comes from is the fact that people don't know who they are, what they believe, or why they're even here anymore. And because the strange death of Europe really unpackaged those issues so uh, so compellingly. It was praised by Nick Cohen, Sir Roger Scruton, who I've also interviewed, Clive James, um, and Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who, who was very emphatic in his praise of this. Just to give you a rundown uh, of, of Murray's biography here before we get into his, his next book, uh, Murray has been a contributor to The Spectator since the year 2000, and he's been the associate editor there. Uh, since 2012, he he frequently writes fantastic columns over there. I follow his work regularly. He also has written for other outlets like the Wall Street Journal, the Times, the Sunday Times, the Sun, the Evening Standard, the New Criterion, and the National Review, as well as the Standpoint. His first book came out in 2000 while he was still an undergrad at Oxford, and he has since then uh, published uh, four more full-length books on politics, history, and current affairs, his most recent of which, We'll be discussing coming right up here. In 2007, he founded the Center for Social Cohesion, the first think tank in Britain to study extremism and terrorism, and the CSC subsequently became part of the Henry Jackson Society, where Murray held the position of associate director from 2011 to 2018. Those of you who watch these sorts of things on YouTube will know that Douglas Murray is a very prolific debater, and he has spoken on a wide variety of prominent platforms, including at the British and European parliaments and at the White House. His opponents have included Tariq Ramadan, Julian Assange, Rowan Williams, and Anyam Chowdhury. He appears often on the top political debate programs, including the BBC's Newsnight, Daily Politics, This Week, and Question Time. He has also appeared uh, on some of the most listened to podcasts, including Joe Rogan's podcast and Waking Up 
with Sam Harris. Some of you uh, might also know that he appeared on a series of roundtable events with Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, one of them right here in Canada in Vancouver, which I wrote a review of. Just engaging in some of the most important questions facing us right now, like uh, where are we going as a society? Who are we? Why are we here? And I think that Douglas Murray is one of the most interesting voices uh, on that subject, actually. He calls himself a Christian atheist sometimes to highlight the fact that if we are not Christian, then we have to face the realization that Christian ethics may not survive into the post-Christian era, and that while he does not believe in Christianity himself, he is recognizing that Christianity bequeathed to Western civilization something we may be incapable of actually replacing. And his writing on this is just so frank and so honest. He's also one of the best writers uh, writing right now. Once I started reading his work on the migrant crisis, there's pretty much nobody else that I read on that subject. Again, his book, The Strange Death of Europe, is just phenomenal. But the book he came on to talk to us about this time is uh, a, a new one where he tries to really analyze what's currently going on in our society. And one of the th- reasons that those of you who are, are listening to this podcast will find interesting is he touches on a lot of the same topics that some of our previous guests have talked about. So we recently had on Dr. Patrick Deneen to talk about his book, uh, Why Liberalism Failed. We, before him, had on Mary Aberstadt to talk about uh, why the sexual revolution created identity politics, uh, primal screams. If you take Patrick Deneen's book and Mary Aberstadt's book and Douglas Murray's book, which is again called The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity, you start to get an extraordinarily clear picture of what's going on. Because things have happened so fast and so confusingly that a lot of people really feel like they're watching this all happen on a flickering TV screen that's coming in and out of focus. But with each of these books, with Mary Aberstadt's book, Patrick Deneen's book, and then Douglas Murray's book, you see the screen flicker less and start to come into focus, and you start to be able to understand exactly why our society seems to have gone so nuts. Now, of course, uh, Patrick Deneen and Mary Aberstadt, well, Patrick Deneen avoids coming at the subject from an explicitly Christian perspective, but still talks a lot about our loss of the Judeo-Christian tradition and what impact that's had on our society. Mary Aberstadt obviously comes at this not from an explicitly Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, but also points out simply that, look, uh, the loss of religion uh, resulted to a large degree in the loss of the family and, and vice versa, as one of her other books pointed out. And as a result, the loss of Christian faith that used to underpin the West and inform her foundations has led us to this point where we have uh, what she refers to as primal screams. That's how she describes what Douglas Murray would call the madness of crowds, that we have a entire society that's sort of uh, it's it's breaking apart, it's atomizing, and people uh, no longer have groups they naturally belong to, like large families, and instead they're sort of uh, coalescing around these bizarre identity politics uh, identities. These identities are being weaponized, and then as a result, it's sort of driving the cultural direction our society is taking. And in his book, The Madness of Crowds, Douglas Murray sort of steps in and says, look, this is crazy. Uh, What we're doing is not making us happy. It's making us miserable, and it could actually break 
society apart if we are not very, very careful. Now, Douglas Murray comes at this from even more of a secular perspective than Mary Aberstadt and uh, Patrick Deneen do. But one of the things I've been so impressed about with Douglas Murray is despite the fact that he himself would be, as, as I mentioned earlier, a Christian atheist or an agnostic, he's very, very open and honest about the fact that one of the reasons we are where we are is the fact that we no longer have a set of beliefs binding us together as a society. And this is one of the reasons his book, The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity, is such a fascinating read. I started reading it a couple of weeks ago, and it's taken me a while to get through it just because uh, each individual topic is so fascinating. So Douglas Murray, as you can imagine, has been crazy busy. His book got released last week. He's been on Tucker Carlson's show. He's been on the BBC. He's been pretty much uh, everywhere now, but they were. he was great. He was... Uh, kind enough to fit 20 minutes in to talk to us on this show about his book, The Madness of Crowds, and his analysis of what's currently uh, going on in Western civilization. So we were very, very grateful to have him on for a discussion in the middle of his very busy, busy press tour. So without further introduction from me, here is my conversation with Douglas Murray. Uh, so first of all, I just finished your book, and could you give us a, a short diagnosis of what is happening across the West as you lay out in the madness of crowds? Yeah, I'm um, been worried for some years that basically there seems to be something like a new religion being imposed on countries like America and Britain, where you probably tell I'm from. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, every day's news betrays it, and it's that there's a new form of ethics and indeed politics, which revolves almost entirely around the four issues which I do chapter by chapter in the book. That's gay, uh, women, race, and trans. These have become the absolute hot wire issues around which massive uh, uh, battles are fought, and where I think we see the emergence of what is called the social justice movement and, in a more ugly version, intersectionality. And I explain why, first of all, this is a deranging uh, set of ideas. Mm-hmm. Secondly, uh, why it's deranging and how it can be taken apart. And thirdly, to suggest to people we should be doing something better with our time than playing this very ugly form of what is basically at root politics. One of the things that's interesting about your analysis is that when you, you call it a religion, interestingly, I've heard people really push back against that assertion. So when you say that, that certain Western countries have essentially been colonized by this new religion, what do you mean when you refer to it as a religion? I mean, it has all of the hallmarks. It's a totalistic explanation of our lives, what we should be doing, and how to seek justice. This is the word justice is absolutely central in all this. It's a set of justice claims, and it claims, among other things, that if you have these uh, injustices, they all lock together, and that if you address one injustice, you can address them all, and that we get to some indistinct end point where, you know, some kind of global justice is meant to reign. People are very uncertain and uh, uh, don't particularly flesh out the details of what's meant to happen at the end of this whole process. But mm-hmm. we're told that it's, it's a great set of battles and fights that we're all meant to be engaged in. 
One of the most powerful things that you, you've pointed out uh, over the last couple of months in your book, in your interviews, is that when people are forced to say things that they do not agree with and cannot believe, things like, you know, her penis and his breasts, that, that being forced to do this is profoundly demoralizing, and it's really a tool of totalitarianism. And this quote from your book really stuck out to me. You said, this form of dogmatic, vengeful liberalism may, among other things, at some stage risk undermining and even bringing down the whole liberal era. And it's interesting you say this. We had Dr. Patrick Deneen, who wrote Why Liberalism Failed, mm. on this podcast yeah. uh, a couple of weeks ago. So what did you mean by that analysis, and how do you see this playing out? Well, yes, you see, this is this is something that I, I, I point out because there's an awful lot of little lies which we engage in. And my belief is that the reason why you can't give in to the little lies is because you'll, you'll be asked to do a much bigger one down the road. So we had one in Britain recently with Sam Smith, the pop singer, saying that he's non-binary and that this means we have to say they, them pronouns. And I say I just won't do that. And the reason is because I know that one of the great lessons of totalitarianism, and we do not, goodness knows, live in totalitarian societies, but one of the hallmarks of totalitarian societies is that you make people say things that are not true and that they know not to be true and that you know not to be true because it demoralizes them and allows them to pass other lies by. Mm-hmm. And that's why, as you say, things like her penis and things, you know, is, 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 is more than just an issue of politeness, which is how it's often uh, dressed up. And, you know, in all of these things, I think that we have become incapable of thinking about issues we need to think about. And I lay that out in the trans chapter in the book by saying, this is a very interesting claim that's being made. Let's take it seriously and let's discuss it for once. And that's what I try to do. And I don't think there's anything hateful in it. I know there's nothing hateful in it. But I know that we need to be able to think about these things because, you know, particularly when it comes to experimenting on children, I'm just not willing to give the concessions and accept the claims that are being made, because without, at the very least, thinking about them very seriously, and that means we have to talk about them. So one of the difficulties with talking about these issues is I notice that a lot of people that are getting caught in the sort of the, the transphobe net are ordinary blue collar folks like construction workers yeah. and dockers and young moms. And I've said this uh, on the radio before in a, in a discussion on this issue that the day you have construction workers and farmers and shopkeepers um, just instinctively recognizing uh, this sort of thing, then I'll believe that the transgender trend isn't being imposed from the top down, but is actually growing from the ground up. You had that that poor guy in Scotland who actually got fined a thousand pounds simply for making fun of what he perceived as a biological male dressed up in female clothes. So how do you explain this to someone who's just been bewildered by it all? Because this does seem like a top-down imposition on a lot of people who just don't know what hit them. That's right. That's what uh, it, that's what's so striking because you see, there was a time when people presented what I write about in this book as if it was purely a matter of I don't know weird West Coast liberal arts colleges, yeah. and that's just not the case. The only people who think this isn't coming for her for them, this sort of social justice movement, are people who are self-employed and don't have to go into an office. Yeah, because in every big corporation, sure as anything, this is flooding in through human resources departments and others, the endless drive for so-called diversity, which ends up being a very specific imposition on the workplace. This comes in at government level, it comes in at corporation level, and, and, 
And as you say, this is this is a top-down imposition of a very specific ideology. And and you know, I try in the madness of crowds to explain the roots of that ideology, where it comes from, what it's claiming, take the claims seriously, then take those claims apart, and then, as I say, urge people to do something better with our lives. So this is really interesting because in your conclusion, you end your conclusion uh, very eloquently, and I don't think I'm giving anything away. Uh, to those listeners who will be purchasing the book by pointing out that you say, look, uh, power is not usually what brings people happiness. Politics certainly doesn't make people fulfilled. It's family, it's loved ones. And that connected with something you had written earlier in the book where you say that there's an irony in that the very people complaining about how we live in fascist societies are living in the very least fascist societies and their own lives kind of prove this fact. And so what does... What does this say about the ability of of involvement in these issues to bring people fulfillment and meaning? Because if you can be living in a free democratic society, and yet you are so profoundly unhappy that you have the illusion of living in a fascist society, what does that tell us about the ability of these issues uh, to make us happy and how long these issues actually can continue on the sort of winning streak they appear to be at the moment? That's right. Well, you know, one of the the group I'm most uh, uh, eager to speak to in this book is young people who are trying to make sense of the world and are being shown a very deranged view of their society. And uh, why I say this is because young people in particular uh, uh, are being told to politicize their lives, to politicize everything, to weaponize identity issues like their race, like their gender, like their sexuality. And I say that they should do exactly the opposite of what the culture tells them. They should seek to depoliticize their lives. Because politicization of gender, politicization of race, politicization of all of these things is, is ending up in a zero-sum game that can bring nothing but unhappiness. And so I'm saying to people that, among other things, we should do, as I say, what is counterintuitive these days, but to say, let's look at where meaning actually comes from in our lives. Politics, as, as you and I know, is a very, very interesting thing. Mm-hmm. But it is a horrible source of all of life's meaning. And I stress that it's understandable that young people in particular are being wooed into these social justice movements because, let's face it, you know, particularly in the wake of the financial crash of 2008, young people have found it exceptionally hard in Western democracies to accumulate, collect capital. Yes. And it's not obvious why young people who don't have the ability to collect capital would have any particular love of capitalism. And on the flip side of that, I can completely see, and I give lots of evidence of it in the book, I can completely see why people who don't think they ever have a chance of getting on the housing ladder might be attracted to a social justice religion which claims that it is capable of sorting out every single inequity on earth. I mean, it's got an appeal. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is where, at the heart of the matter in your conclusion, as I was reading through your conclusion, I actually thought back to a column you wrote You wrote a few years ago, and you were writing about our society's increasing apathy. Uh, it was uh, the particular issue you were writing about, I believe, was, was Kermit Gosnell. And, and you wrote this, uh, The more atheists think on these things, the more we may have to accept that the concept of the sanctity of human life is a Judeo-Christian notion which might very easily not survive Judeo-Christian civilization. Those who do not believe in God and who stare over that cliff may realize that only three options remain open to us. The first option is to fall into the furnace. Another is to work furiously to nail down an atheist version of the 
sanctity of the individual. And if that does not work, then there is only one other place to go, which is back to faith, whether we like it or not. So in the context of your book and you talking about how a new religion is coming into the West, I guess I just wanted to ask, where do you think we are on hammering out that new set of ethics and replacing the set of beliefs that we abandoned? Well, exactly. I mean, as I say, the reason why this has caught on, why the social justice movement has caught on, is because there is a great gap. There is a great gap in people's lives, which this has is making an appeal to fill. And I think people have to realize that it's as big as that. That that here is this set of beliefs. It has its own dogmas. My goodness, it has it has its excommunication strategy, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's very good. It's very good at that. It's very good at scapegoating. It's very good at finding heretics and chasing them out and chasing them down and ruining their lives. And I think that for a significant number of people, yes, this has become the religion in view of the religion that people used to have in our society. And I, I, I remain of that view that, that, that you've basically got only those three options that you, that you quote me outlining there. Um, I don't tell people what it is. I mean, I give some suggestions. I don't tell them what it is they should be doing. What I do know is that involving ourselves in a zero-sum game, which is which is a zero-sum game which weaponizes women against men, gay people against straight people, everyone of different races against each other, and more. All of this is going to massively divide us in the years ahead, and it will, what's more, distract us. I don't think it's a good use of a young person's time in this in this era when we're living. You know what? what what era would you prefer to live in than this one? Right. And with all of the opportunities we have, all of the blessings we have, all of the incredible luck we have to be around now, surely we should be encouraging young people now to be doing great things with their lives, not to be breaking themselves down and breaking others down across identity groupings. To do what exactly? To achieve what exactly? And that's why I say, you know, look at the things in this whole new religion that do not make any sense. And my favorite one, which I cite in the book, is the thing of simultaneously saying, you must understand me. And at the same time, you will never understand Mm -hmm. me. We are encouraging people to think about themselves and break down their identities along these lines. And as examples like that one I've just given you show, it's not a winnable game. It is only a losing game, so we should be playing a different game. Are you optimistic that we can switch? I am actually, because I, you know, I, I, I when I give talks and things, I meet an awful lot of young people who come out, people really smart men and women in their teens and twenties, and they are starting to notice that they are being sold a lie with this thing, and that it doesn't work. And my hope is that in in pulling apart the thing they're being offered, as I do in the madness of crowds, and showing them that this is just not a good way to spend their lives, you give them the weapons to take this apart, the weapons to see through this maddening, dementing thing that they are being offered in their generation. And I think that, you know, I believe that smart American uh, kids are going to be able to find their way out of this. But, you know, <laughs> they don't have to help them. And the adults at the moment are deranging ourselves and uh, and are showing the worst possible life lessons for the next generation. So I do have confidence, actually. But 
you know, there's a long way to go. And the first thing is to understand this thing and pull it apart. Final question, just to understand uh, why you wrote this book, I heard you use a very interesting analogy at your book launch about the minesweeper. You said you were trying to create a space (laughs) for us to have that conversation. So maybe as a final question, and then tell our listeners where they can get their book, why why did you write this book in in terms of that analogy? Well, yeah, I was speaking to a friend of mine who was in the armed forces in the UK, and he he told me about a thing called the Great Viper, and uh, the American Army has this as well. Uh, American military. And basically, it's the thing, you pull it on the back of a truck to the edge of a minefield, and it's this great big rocket, and you fire it off, and it's got a long, long tail, which is packed with explosives. And it, it goes across the minefield, and lays across it, and then detonates all in one go. And, uh, why did, why was I thinking about this as I was writing the madness crowd? <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, 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 this can't clear the entire minefield, this device. But it can make it safe for others to cross. And so I say, I do the thinking and the writing and the talking and the explaining about gay, about women, about race, about trans. I do these things because I want to make it safer for other people to tread into this terrain as well. Now, of course, the downside of that is we don't know if the person who unleashes the great vice has survived, but I've just got my fingers <laughs> crossed on that. <laughs> so the madness of the crowd, gender, race, and identity is already a bestseller in the U.S. And, uh, and I'm really just so grateful to that amazing readership in America. It can be bought, of course, on all good bookshops, all bookshops you can find, and also, of course, on Amazon and everywhere else. Douglas, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Douglas Murray on his book, The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity, which I found to be a fascinating read. I, I especially found his, his chapter on the transgender phenomenon to be very, very interesting. I'll be writing a few reviews of his book in, uh, in the days to come. I was originally planning to write one review, but there, he just covers too much for me to, to give everything uh, that I thought was interesting fair treatment in, in a single review without it being too much of a gargantuan piece of writing that people might decline to read. If you want to check out past podcasts, head over to lifesightnews.com and check out my podcast. We're on Pippa. We're on iTunes, we're on SoundCloud. The podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Again, uh, this week was Douglas Murray, but last week we talked to Patrick Deneen on why liberalism failed. The week before that, we talked to Mary Aberstadt on how uh, the sexual revolution shaped identity politics. So we're really trying to dig deep and talk to some of the sharpest minds and the brightest academics uh, on why we're where we are as a society and, and how we could possibly leave. Is there any hope? Is there any optimism? And we hope to continue bringing you conversations like this. If you want to check out other news and commentary, I write three columns a week as well over at LifeSiteNews.com, so you can head over there uh, to check those out if you're so inclined. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we really do hope you'll join us again next week for an interesting conversation. Bye for now.